This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 10th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What limits a state's ability to seize property as either used in a crime or the proceeds of crime? We may soon find out in a case now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Sam Gedge is an attorney for the Institute for Justice representing Tyson Timms in the case of Timms v. Indiana. We spoke last month. How has the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment been applied so far? What does that mean? To date, it hasn't been applied all that much, uh, certainly not by the U.S. Supreme Court. But it has applied to kind of classic punitive economic sanctions. What are, what are some of the biggest cases where it has been applied so far? Sure. So the Austin case in 1993 was a case where the U.S. Supreme Court said uh, that the excessive fines clause applies not just to kind of classic fines but also to civil forfeitures. And that really kind of set the ball rolling towards this protection, at least okay. against forfeitures. So the seizure, seizure of property and we're not talking about just cash. We're talking about possessions or assets that people possess like the taking of these things – uh, by by a state, by a government, uh, can trigger um, some constitutional rights, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, amazingly, yes, that's right. So uh, if the government's taking your stuff to punish you, then the excessive fines clause is one of the constitutional protections that's in play. And so Mr. Timms uh, had a vehicle taken from him. Mr. Timms was uh, a drug addict who also sold drugs and uh, – in dealing with the state of Indiana, he had a vehicle seized that essentially, if I understand his argument correctly, had nothing to do with uh, his use or uh, selling of drugs. That's right. Um, so Tyson's car was at most tenuously linked to uh, a one-off criminal um, offense, namely selling two grams of heroin to undercover cops. Uh, the car wasn't purchased with drug money. It was just something that he drove once. What uh, do people estimate is the value of two grams of heroin? Uh, he sold it, I believe, for about 200 bucks, maybe a little bit more. Okay. So when we think about uh, in the criminal justice system or in our justice system more broadly, we think about the proportionality of whatever the government takes. When when they take something that has been involved in or is the proceeds from criminal activity, that's typically what we mean when we talk about a, a criminal seizure, right? That's largely right, yeah. I mean, um, you can imagine a scenario where like Pablo Escobar's plane is seized and forfeited and he's using it every day to bring cocaine into the country. This is kind of at the the far opposite end of the spectrum. Okay, so what is the what is the state of Indiana's argument here? They By taking his vehicle, they argue what? So the, the state really reflexively used this really powerful law enforcement tool, civil forfeiture, to um, punish Tyson separate and apart from his criminal conviction by taking his car. Uh, their position was that you know he drove this car to a drug deal and it's therefore linked to a crime and we're going to take it. And that's – I don't want to be unfair to their argument, but that, that's basically what their position is. OK. So – and they argue that because this was not a criminal forfeiture that – 
defined cannot be excessive. Do I understand that correctly? Kind of, although I think their argument and certainly the Indiana Supreme Court's opinion was far more radical than that because what the Indiana Supreme Court said uh, was not that there's a special carve-out for civil forfeiture but that the excessive fines clause doesn't apply at all to the states even if we're talking about punitive forfeitures or classic fines. Um, they just said, you know, we, we can – we can forfeit people's property excessively. We can fine people excessively and the Eighth Amendment has nothing to say about that. Wow, that is, that is pretty radical. So what did the uh, oral argument at the U.S. Supreme Court tell us about the views generally of members of the court about whether or not this particular portion of this particular amendment to the Bill of Rights actually does apply to states. Right. So it's always, I guess, dangerous to try to predict anything from oral argument. But, but I mean, what, what, what were some of the what were some of the conversations that uh, I, I I'm thinking of Justices Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, that right. seem to have fairly pointed criticism of this the state of Indiana. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that there was a, a fair amount of skepticism on the court towards the state's argument. So right out of the gate, uh, Justice Gorsuch, I think he let the Indiana Solicitor General get maybe two sentences out before he basically said, "Come, are you seriously trying to persuade us that the excessive fines clause doesn't apply to the states? And he said, come on, General, you know, uh, how can you say that with a straight face? Uh, then Justice Sotomayor um, kind of uh, came into the mix a little bit too and said, you know, really is the only way that you can win with a straight face here having us overrule our past precedent. And, you know, those are just two examples of justices really kind of trying to trying to struggle with the, the really kind of radical nature of the state's position. So what are the implications of this case? You have excessive fines uh, being potentially applied against states, the process of incorporation, as, as people know it. The Second Amendment was incorporated in 2008, I believe. 2010, uh, yeah. 2010, yeah. I'm sorry. And so what does this mean for uh, both civil forfeiture and future state activity with regard to forfeiture. Right. So I think there's two aspects that make this case really interesting. The first is kind of the, the constitutional housekeeping aspect of it, which is how my, my co-counsel Wesley Hoddit described it at the argument. Um, really, to the extent people think about it at all, we just assume that the Bill of Rights, of course, applies and protects us when state and local authorities are trying to infringe our rights. And just by happenstance, the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't ever said that explicitly in a holding uh, when it comes to the excessive fines clause. So it's important to kind of dot that I and cross that T. Another, you know, really important aspect of the case though is that it kind of introduces uh, many members of the court to some of the most pernicious aspects of civil forfeiture, um, even though it's kind of under the um, under the umbrella of an incorporation analysis here. Because, you know, part of the court's skepticism at oral argument was that this is an obviously punitive mechanism. And, you know, the excessive fines clause exists to uh, serve as a check against the, the worst abuses of that mechanism. So in some ways, this strikes me as at least from the federal level down to states, like the only really meaningful check that has been applied to civil forfeiture at all. Uh, the, the feds have assisted states in circumventing their own state laws to engage in forfeitures or at least participate in forfeitures and some police departments have profited fairly handsomely from participating in what eventually became federal forfeitures. But how does this actually change how states are going to go about doing forfeiture? 
I think for the kind of mine run forfeiture case, it probably won't become an issue. You know, almost by definition, you know, most fines, most forfeitures aren't constitutionally excessive. Uh, nonetheless, though, you know, we hear of cases where the, the forfeitures are constitutionally excessive, and this is just one example of it. Um, so it's important that we have this kind of constitutional safety net in play, even if for most people they don't actually have to use it. Quick prediction: seven two eight one. Nine zero, predict it, call it. You know, it, I, I'm not going to jinx us, um, but we came out of the oral argument, you know, very uh, confident, confident that we'd put our best foot forward. Sam Gedge is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 